related to the virtue of, of patience. Well, why is that important? Well, in part because putting, like the idea of just putting up with someone is not quite the idea here. Like unbelievers can do that. Um, and it's more than just tolerate. I mean, we can tolerate and we can roll our eyes while we tolerate. So it's, it's more than that. But part of it in bearing is realizing that the shortcomings that perhaps we see in other people, that we also have shortcomings. And that people are bearing with us in graciousness. And so we too ought to bear with them in graciousness. Some people think it's a spiritual gift to see people's shortcomings. <laughs> um, don't conflate a critical spirit with the gift of wisdom, okay? Um, every one of us has shortcomings. Some people's shortcomings are very obvious. Others, not so much. But we all have them. Every single one of us. So when you see those shortcomings in your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you will, and you do, and you have, you bear it. You are patient and gracious and kind. Do you address it? Yes, as the occasion calls for it. But the idea is that through Christ, you are empowered to deal with the most challenging of people. Whoever it might be, you can endure and walk Christ-like in whatever situation regardless of what the other person is saying or doing. In other words, you don't have to sin when you're sinned against. You don't have to sin when you're sinned against. You don't have to be short-tempered when they are short-tempered. You don't have to be cutting uh, when they are cutting you down. So, you have to bear. But there's, there, there's more to it. That's just part of it. You're bearing, but you're also doing what it says here, you're forgiving. Um, the person you have to bear with is likely the person you have to also forgive. That word forgive here points to actively accepting those who have wronged them. So we see it manifested in these virtues that we've been looking through, the compassionate hearts, the kindness, the humility, the meekness. Um, those things lead us to forgive others. But when you forgive them, here's the thing. How do you treat them? Well, you continue with the compassion, with the kindness, with the humility, with the meekness and the patience. When does forgiveness run out? Like it doesn't, right? It doesn't. What, is, what do we find out in Matthew? Turn to Matthew. Hold your place here, but turn to Matthew and let's see what Jesus says. Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came, came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some versions might say 70 times seven. Well, what's the idea here? There's not a limit. There's not a limit on the number of times we are to forgive. And oftentimes, when we're talking about forgiveness, <clears throat> each one of us in here probably has been hurt deeply 
by people. And generally, what happens is the, the depth of the hurt is, is uh, somewhat on the level of to the relationship that we have that person. The people we know better can hurt us deeper, generally. And what we have to remember is we, we can forgive someone and we can actually really truly forgive someone and walk in that forgiveness. That doesn't necessarily just like wipe away the thing that the person did. Just doesn't, it doesn't work like that. But you've heard like the, you know, it's like cliche, forgive and forget. Well, um, if someone's done something painful and hurtful, it, I mean, I'm not sure we're, we're just, you just can't rub that off. And I don't, I don't think we're necessarily called to forget. If we want to try to put that in any type of biblical sense, the idea would be we don't bring it up again to that person. Like, it's been dealt with and done with. You're raising young kids and, and you discipline them and the sin is dealt with and the offense is dealt with then it's, it's done, and you don't bring it back up. You don't talk about it around the other kids. It's been dealt with. Why do we do that? Because we want to practice the same thing that, that our relationship with Christ is. Like when he forgives us, when we come to him and ask forgiveness and repentance, like the sin is dealt with. Does he hang that over our head? Now I'm asking you all, okay? You can respond occasionally. <laughs> no, he doesn't hang that over our head. He doesn't hang it over our head. We don't hang other people's sin over their head. When they come and we've been gracious and kind and then we forgive them, and here's the thing, if we're being honest, when we're talking about forgiveness, we can have like an initial act of forgiveness, but sometimes, and not necessarily through any fault of the person who sinned against us, but that, that, that hurt can get drug up again. And so it's like we have to walk in forgiveness. And, it's, and at times, especially if it's, if it's something that's been rather deep and painful, it's like we have to almost be like continually forgiven. And that thing might get drug up sometimes by our flesh, sometimes by the enemy. And we have to be like, you know what? I forgave that person and I've dealt with it. And, and they've come to me. They've asked for forgiveness. They've repented. And so I'm, I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm moving on. And so we, we have to learn to make sure that we keep basically our, the people's sin, that we don't hang it over their head, that we walk in forgiveness towards them um, continually. That can be very challenging to do. We get a couple areas here of how we can continue to walk that out. One, go back to Colossians and notice what he says. After he talks about bearing and forgiving, he says in verse 14, and above all these, he's talking about those, those traits, the compassionate heart, the kindness, the humility, the meekness, and the patience, but, and above all these, put on love. Put on love. Put on love. And what does the love do? It binds everything together in perfect harmony. So it's like, it's like the bow around everything. Love binds the other traits. It's kind of interesting when you think about it for a moment. The, the Romans had four words for love. So you had the agape, which is usually equated with like God's love for us. You had the philia, which is like the brotherly love. You had like the sturge, which is like the father, son, mother, daughter relationship. You had the eros, which is more the sexual. So four different words. We just have one. It's kind of unfortunate because we, just, we can be talking about love and sometimes we just use it really flippantly. Sometimes when we, we're, I think we're more careful when we say I love you because we're like, how is that going to be interpreted? Which one of those loves might they be thinking, right? 
but we're supposed to love. Well, what does that look like? Well, it looks like doing exactly what 1 Corinthians talks about in, in chapter 13. What does it do? It, it bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. And what happens if you can do all those amazing things in 1 Corinthians 13 and you're serving and you're laying your life down, but if you're missing one thing, which is love, what does he say? You're just like a, 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 an empty symbol, a, a clanging gong. It, it makes no difference. So love is like, it's like the bow, but it is like the absolute essential ingredient that you must absolutely have. You have to have it. So it'd be like, you know, deciding to have uh, steak and you're going to have this amazing steak and you're going to have like this amazing butter to put on top of it and you've got this amazing steak rub and you get all the ingredients for that, for that rub and you put it all together and you've got that little butter ready to go and then you leave out the steak and you put that on the grill without the steak. I mean, you, you got to have the steak, right? So you can have all those other things, but... The, the key component there is the stake. Well, that, that's the same that is being communicated to us. Above all, have the love. And what kind of a love is it? Is it a subjective love? No. It's objective. It, it doesn't change based on the person. Your definition of love and your definition of love and your definition of love, it really doesn't matter. We're looking at what the Bible says and then that is the definition of love. That is how we are supposed to act. We don't get to define what love looks like. So here's the thing. The genuineness of an act of love is not determined by the subjective feelings of the one being loved. I'll say that one more time. The genuineness of an act of love is not determined by the subjective feelings of the one being loved. Feeling unloved is not the same as being unloved. Think about that for a moment. Feeling unloved is not the same as being unloved. Even if you just think about Jesus' death on the cross, that's infuriated some people. They haven't seen that as loving. They haven't even seen it as anything. Even Jesus' very words were tough at times, quite pointed, but they're still loving. To the hard-hearted, what did Jesus do? He gave very tough words. Why? Because he was trying to break through the hard heart. So he gave tough words. Did that take away from the genuineness of the love he displayed towards them? No. But those Pharisees might have been like, well, I didn't feel loved. Well, that might be true. But it doesn't take away from the genuineness of the act. Because why? Love is not subjective. It's objective. And that's the point. You can display genuine love. You can display genuine love, and the receiver of that love might not interpret it as love. For God so loved the world. Has everyone in the world interpreted God's love as real, true, genuine love? No. It's been despised. It's been rejected. But their rejection of His love and their lack of receiving it and seeing it as love doesn't change the fact that God so loved the world. And, and pause for a moment because, you know, God so loved the world, right, that he sent his son Jesus for us. 
And the picture that we get in Scripture over and over again is Jesus is the groom, and what are we? We're the bride. And when we grow in our relationship with Jesus, guess what we're learning to do? Specifically here in this passage, the focus is us learning to love better the bride of Christ. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, you can't love Jesus and not love his bride. You can't love Jesus and not love his bride. And we're being told here how to to love well. Well, and some of us say, like, I'm loving? Well, we use that as a catch-all phrase to mean all sorts of things, but it gets us out of talking about the reality of if we really love. If we're talking about love, then encompassed in that and included in it would be a compassionate heart. Do we display the compassionate heart? What about the kindness? What about the humility or the meekness or the patience? If we have love, that will be a part of it. It will be displayed. So we can say, like, I'm loving, I'm loving, I'm loving. Well, guess what? We have to display it towards others. We have to show it. And one area where we're called to do that is with our brothers and sisters in Christ, within the church. So we can't just stand behind a word like love, and wave that word around like it's a little white flag, but then have nothing that the word stands for. You know, and some people say, I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. Well, those people probably can't stand you either. But they do. I mean, they bear. That's the bearing. That's the forgiving. And, and one author said, you can't love Jesus and divorce yourself from his bride. If you truly love Jesus, you'll love his church and love to worship with the church. And because of that, we will work through challenging situations. We won't just get upset and have our feelings hurt and leave a church. We will work and work and work and walk in forgiveness and look to display that towards our brothers and sisters. Because guess what? They're going to do the same for you. And they, and they likely have. So we have those traits and we have love which binds them together. We need two more things. First, we need the peace of Christ. Look back in Colossians. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The peace of Christ. Now a lot of times when we think of peace, we're, again, we're thinking more subjective, but this is, this is like an objective objective peace it's not like really focused on a feeling you can have some of the craziest times in your life going on very stressful times even um, sorrowful times even depressing times and the peace of christ can still reign in your life it can be there it can be present so what's this idea with the peace of christ well the idea is that it's the peace that christ gives to us it's from him It's not something that we conjure up on our own. It's not something that we just produce. It's not something that we just will into into being. No, it's, it's something that is there and that Christ has and that he gives to us. Think about peace in terms of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. The peace is there as opposed to war. And originally, we were enemies of the cross of Christ. We were by nature, what, children of wrath, Ephesians 2. 
that we're at war with him. Can you have peace when there's war? No. You can't have peace when there's war. Those are opposites. So we're at war, we're at war, we're at war. And what happens? For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. He wanted peace with us. He wanted to offer us the opportunity for peace. And what are those terms? He sends his son. His son lived the perfect life, dies. And what does God do? He offers his own son up as, as really like a, a sacrificial offering. Included in that, it's like a peace offering. Why? Because he's coming to us and he's offering us the terms of peace. And what are the terms? Hey, I'm going to take all your sin and, and put it on my son Jesus. And I'm going to take all his righteousness because he has no sin and I'm going to put it on you. What do you think about that? Well, those are pretty good terms. And what does he want? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. That's the same peace. We have peace with God, and so that peace that we have with God, that's the peace that comes none other than from Christ. Why? Because he's the one that laid down his life for us. So it's his to have, and it's his to give, and he gives it to us. If one does not come into a relationship of vertical peace with God, accomplished through Christ's blood, then we can't have horizontal peace with one another in Christ's body. But because we have peace with God, then we can have peace with one another. Again, not subjective, but objective. So we rely on the Lord and we look to him. We acknowledge him as the only source for everything that we have, whether it's material blessings or spiritual blessings or just the very fruit of the Spirit. Whose, whose fruit is it? It's the Spirit's, right? Same thing here. We're seeing these traits. Where are they coming from? I mean, it's God giving them to us through His Spirit because of what Christ has done. Look at Isaiah 31. Isaiah 31, verse 1, it says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. It is very easy for us to look for all sorts of different means and ways to answer our solutions and our problems before we even think of beginning to look to the Lord. Whatever it might be, a relationship we're dealing with, a character flaw that we have. And he, here he says to the Israelites, tempted to go to Egypt, tempted to look elsewhere for help, woe, woe to you. And what does he say? Do not look, you do not look to the Holy One of Israel, consult the Lord. That's the very first place we should go. Whatever we're dealing with. And so when we have this peace that comes, that Christ gives to us, this real peace allows real forgiveness. It allows us to walk in healing and wholeness. When we have the peace of Christ, we can offer that peace to others. And real peace allows a real forbearance. Because we're no longer at war with God, we can, we can wave the white flag of peace and no longer be at war with one another. 
This, brothers and sisters, is new creation living. New creation living. New creation living. When you show these traits, guess what you're doing? You're testifying to the new creation that you are. Are you a new creation? 2 Corinthians 5, right? You're that new creation? Then display it. Display that you're the new creation. People should see that you're the new creation. And when you testify to these, uh, when you show these traits, guess what you also testify to? That there's a different creation that's coming. A new one. A better one. And one which you're already part of. It's like you guys are like the first fruits, so to speak, of the new creation. And so these traits that we're seeing belong to new creation living. Listen, if you're a new creation, you're not made for the old, decrepit world, but rather for the new, glorious world. One without sin. One without suffering. One without pain. So new creatures live in new creation and they act with new living. In other words, act like you belong. Since you're a new creation, live a new creation lifestyle. Clothe yourselves with the traits of the new world. What does the new creation entail? One body. One body. Not two, just earlier. In Colossians, what does he tell us? Verse 11, no Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, buried, the enslaved, free. Why? It's one body. One body. Not two, one body. So what does this lead us to? It leads us to the very last part of verse 15, where it says, and be thankful. So we're commanded to do that. We're commanded to be uh, to bear with one another. We're commanded to forgive one another. Put on the love as the wrapper of, of all these traits. Walk in peace towards one another. And then finally be thankful. Why does the Holy Spirit add this? Because, brothers and sisters, you have the body of Christ to love you, to be with you, to walk with you, to chastise you, to sharpen you, to challenge you. And you should be thankful for that. Be thankful for the church, which is us. Are you thankful for the church? Yes. We are the bride of Christ. Here's the temptation. I'm sure none of you have ever thought this, but here's the temptation. To think that the church would be better if, if this family left, or if that family left, or if this person wasn't here. Listen, don't ever say that. Don't ever say that. Don't ever say that. Okay, unless they're just divisive or heretical, don't ever say that. We want, <clears throat> we, we don't want someone to leave because they don't mesh well. No, if they don't mesh well, let, let's, let's solve that. Maybe it's us, maybe it's them, maybe it's both. Let's love. Let's be compassionate. Let's show kindness. But what's the other reason we're commanded to be thankful for? Well, honestly, we struggle with being thankful. We struggle with it. And over and over and over, when you see a command in Scripture, like repeatedly emphasized, it's like the Colossians had a challenge with it. The Ephesians had a challenge with it. 
the Thessalonians had a challenge with. Why? Because you see that emphasized over and over again. But also, why? Because God wants to make sure that his new creatures are walking in thankfulness. So you see in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, give thanks in how many circumstances? All circumstances. Did you guys have anything rough go wrong this week for you? Did you give thanks? So I was setting you up. But look what it says. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It is God's will for you to give thanks in all circumstances. Like he said it right here. Don't even have to ask that question. I mean, obviously, once he says it, it is his will. But he wants to make sure we get it. Why? Because we, we like to think maybe there's certain circumstances. We don't have to be thankful for a circum certain situations. No, why? Because God is going to use every single situation for his own glory. What does he say in Romans 8, 28? All things work for the good of those. Here's an important part of those who love him. Okay. So he doesn't just work all things for everyone, blessing everywhere. It's for the good of those who love him. But he's going to work. However challenging, rough, horrible, awful, he's working it. He's going to use it. He's working it. All things work to the good of those who love him. So we're thankful. We're walking in thankfulness. Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Part of the reason you hear some people say that they stay away from the church is this very thing. There's, there's a lack of love. There's a lack of these character traits. There's a lack of, of genuine humility. That's why we have to walk out what we claim to, to talk about. Um, it's much easier to say, I, I don't do church anymore. I've had numerous people tell me that over the years. I don't do church anymore because of X or Y. <clears throat> well, that might be true. But it is also true that it is much easier to talk about what the church is lacking than what you are lacking. It's kind of a deflection when you think about it. And it is much easier to have excuses as to why you won't go or be involved than it is to look in the mirror and, you're re and realize you're lacking some qualities and you need some love by the Lord. And part of the reason people stay away is because, guess what? They'd have to display those qualities too. And it's not easy living in community. It's just not. It is not easy to live in community with one another. But, but we're called to do that. And when people are living in community, there are going to be challenging times. There's going to be tough times. There's going to be sin. But there's going to be the forbearance. There's the, going to be the forgiving. There's going to be all those traits and love there as we work through whatever it might be. Because we're all a work in progress, right? Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 8, Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then notice what he says. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, I mean, we're God's workmanship. We're still that, we're that clay on the wheel, right? Spinning around, and he's molding and shaping us. And what does he have, what does he have for his, his workmanship? Good works, it says. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Right? The workmanship is there, and it's created to do the good works. So, once we're saved, we do the good works. We don't do the good works to be saved. I mean, the good works, aren't, they're not even mentioned to right here about what we're doing. And, and back in 9, he makes it really clear, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We, we don't get saved by works, but a saved person will do good works. The works don't save us. That, that's what comes after. So we're the workmanship, we're the new creation, and what happens? New creation living, new creation things. So that means, brothers and sisters, we're still that incomplete work. God's still doing his work. We are being conformed day by day to the image of his son more and more and more. So that means daily we need to come before his throne. How do we do that? One of the ways is, is getting in his word and reading it. I mean, we, we, we heard story after story uh, from Bill, right? People picking up the word, lives changed. Lives changed. I mean, there is, there is power in the Word of God. Power in the Word of God. So we come daily before His throne, getting in His Word, getting on our knees, praying daily before His throne, realizing we can't do it. We need Him. We need Him filling us daily. There's really just two ways to live. I'm going to talk a little bit more about it next week, but there's just two ways to live. We can, we can live for Jesus or, or not. There's two ways to live. Walk in righteousness or walk in unrighteousness. There's two ways to live. But let me tell you something. Regardless of your struggle, regardless of what you're dealing with, Jesus is always there standing in the gap for you. The Holy Spirit, he's filling you. Christ, he's your mediator. He's interceding before you. And Robert Murray McShane, famous theologian, here's what he said. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet, the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. So your, 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 your very own Savior is there interceding for you, standing in the gap for you. What a beautiful picture, but what a beautiful reality that that's what he does. I mean, so yes, 2,000 years ago, Jesus laid down his life for you. And guess what? His work continues on. His work continues on, completed on the cross, but what is he still doing? Interceding at the right hand of the Father for each one of us. So you're struggling, Christ's interceding. You're struggling, the Spirit's filling you up. You can walk in righteousness. You can walk in forgiveness. You can be forbearing towards one another, and you can have these traits listed, not of your own doing, 
but because of what God did for you in Christ. It's a beautiful thing. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the finished work of Jesus. We thank you that he still is at your side interceding for us. And remind us, Lord, that we don't have to fear any enemy because Christ is on our side, standing with us, going to battle for us, equipping us in all sorts of ways, putting us and, and putting us on the, the spiritual armor of God, equipping us with that, ready to do battle wherever he might call us to go, knowing that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you, Father, for the gift of salvation. I pray for anyone here who might not know you, that today they would repent and trust. They wouldn't just know it in their head, but they'd know it in their heart. Give them that saving faith. I pray it for our youth down the hall. I pray the same thing, Father. Um, let them hear those stories, believe those stories, but most importantly, believe in you and in your son, Jesus. Transform their lives radically and do the same for us, Lord, as you have done and are continuing to do. And all for your glory. Amen.